Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over at the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, Revoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus. Talk Recorded live. Good evening and welcome to this edition of the Women of the Revolution. My name is Susan Bonner and I am here with Deb. This is a history show about the Women of the Revolution. A lot of stuff that a lot of people do not realize that how important women were back in the colonial days and especially during the um, American Revolutionary War. So we are going to highlight them once a week as we have been for two years. Yes, folks. We have been doing it for two years, which means there was a lot of women involved in the war, and there was a lot of women not talked about, and there was a lot of women that you were lied about. So, how are you doing tonight, Deb? I'm doing just fine, better than the weather, but that's true yeah. most of the country, I think. <laughs> yep. yep, we're having it here, too, on the mountain, believe it or not. Uh, I just watched a lovely hailstorm before I came on the show. <laughs> Wow, this is the first day we haven't had the wood stove going in, well, all of May. <laughs> yes, because weather does happen. It does. And and from year to year, it can be different. Doesn't mean that we're destroying Mother Gaia. Well, tonight we have decided that we're going to have a special edition to the show. Once a month, we are going to highlight the women behind the signers. Actually, the link that you gave me says says it really did. Yes. Says uh, the women. Right. That's what it said. The women behind the signers, and the signers are the signers of the Declaration of Independence. So we are going to take it state by state once a month and highlight the women of that of a colony. Sorry. Well, it was a colony back there. It's a state now. Uh, of the signers from that colony, their wives. Because, as we're going to point, be pointing out, and we've said this before on this show, once you went against the crown, not only did you go against the crown, but everybody you knew and loved went against the crown. They were just lumped in together. So your wife, your children, your uncle, your cousin, um, you would, the eye of Saruman would go upon your entire family to see who was with who. And, of course, we've always said it's a civil war. So even family members were, you know, um, against each other, like we've pointed out over and over and over again. And there were the loyalists and there were the patriots. We've counted that out over and over again. But once you went against the crown, you put bullseyes on your back and your family. And the signers of the Declaration of Independence knew that going in. And it's very important that we highlight what that meant. So, tonight, we are going to do Patriot Elizabeth Ansley. Is that her middle name? Yeah, Ansley. Ansley Lewis. And her husband was a signer of the Declaration of Independence from the Delegation of New York. 
His name was Francis Lewis. But before we get to their tragic story, and unfortunately, everything about we that we talk about is tragic, right? I mean, pretty much. Gosh, it was tough. Yep. But before we get on to our lovely lady, Patriot Lady, um, Deb is going to give us some background on the Declaration of Independence that most people do not know. After I read the first paragraph of the Declaration of Independence, and excuse me if I choke up because we are exactly where these people were right now. Okay, so... This is from the Declaration of Independence, the Constitution of the United States, from PatriotsPost.us. It's a little book. You can also go to the Heritage Foundation, and you can get your own copy of the Declaration and um, the uh, Constitution. I don't know if the uh, Citizen's Handbook is still around. Do you know anything about the Citizen's Handbook? Uh, yeah, I do believe I have one, but I'm not sure. I, I mean, I have one. <laughs> so, well, we do, too. We have, like, three copies, but mine is so ragged, it isn't even fine. I know. I, know. Um, <laughs> I use it all the time. But you can so, also uh, get it from um, constitutionfacts.com. They have a, a booklet, too, that's pretty good. Okay, that's good to know. These are all places you can get your own copies, ladies and gentlemen. Of course, you can always go online and read it also at the Avalon Project. And if you want to know about the uh, history of the Continental Congress and the Constitution, you can go to patriotspub.us, patriotspub.us. Listen from Episode 1. It was a project that my husband and Jim Curlin, who brought them and I together, and Troy LaPlante did. It is just history, the facts the Constitutional Convention day by day in the Founders' words. So, the Declaration of Independence. In Congress, July 4, 1776. The unanimous Declaration of the 13 United States of America. When in the course of human events, it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve political bands which have connected them with another and to assume among the powers of the earth the separate and equal station to which the laws of nature and of nature's God entitle them. A decent respect to the opinions of mankind requires that they should declare the causes which impel them to separation. Thus, that paragraph would get these men and their families killed. Yep. All right. So, you're up, Deb, and let us know what's going on on the background of the Declaration of Independence. Okay, this is also from constitutionfacts.com, which is a a wonderful little website if you can get over there and just uh, plow through it because uh, it's got all sorts of um, uh, different pages that you can go on and find out how all this transpired in one little place. It's very good. So this is called Drafting the Declaration of Independence. Delegates from each of the 13 colonies met in Philadelphia in the summer of 1776 to decide the case for liberty. The goal was to convince the states that the time had come for the United Colonies to declare their independence from Mother England. It was an incredibly difficult time for the young United States. For more than a year, Great Britain and the 13 colonies had been at a war 
over the issue of taxation without representation. The colonies believed that their rights were being impeded by the British, who were levying taxes upon them without their consent. The conflict had quickly escalated into more of an issue than just taxation, however, and many of the colonies had started to think that they were capable of governing themselves. They were persuaded the Parliament wasn't looking out for their interests, proven by the fact that despite their population, the colonies had not been allowed to represent themselves in the British legislature. As a result, the Second Continental Congress met in Philadelphia in June of 1776. Slightly more than a month later, the Declaration of Independence was proposed to the states. John Hancock, the first signatory, was the only person to sign on July 4th. Many of the other delegates would place their names on the completed document on August 2nd of that same year. The last person to sign, the New New Hampshire delegate Matthew Thornton, endorsed the document on November 4th, 1776. The Lee Resolution, also known as the Resolution of Independence, was an act of the Second Continental Congress declaring the 13 colonies to be independent of the British Empire. Richard Henry Lee of Virginia first proposed it on June 7, 1776. It is the earliest form and draft of the Declaration of Independence, and it stated, Resolved that these united colonies are and of right to be free and independent states that they are absolved from all allegiance to the British crown and that all political connection between them and the state of Great Britain is and ought to be totally dissolved, that it is expedient forthwith to take the most effectual measures for forming foreign alliances, that a plan of confederation be prepared and transmitted to the respective colonies for their consideration and approbation. Early in the development, many delegates weren't yet allowed to vote for independence as the states had not yet authorized them to do so. In the meantime, a group of men were appointed to draft an official declaration with hopes that the states would soon be willing to back the document when it was sent to the Crown in England. On June 11, 1776, Congress appointed a committee of five consisting of John Adams of Massachusetts, Benjamin Franklin of Pennsylvania, Thomas Jefferson of Virginia, Robert R. Livingston of New York, and Roger Sherman of Connecticut to draft a declaration. This declaration committee operated from June 11, 1776 until July 5, 1776, the day on which the declaration was published. The Committee of Five first presented the document to Congress on June 28, 1776. Originally, the delegates pushed for Richard Henry Lee, author of the Lee Resolution, to write the declaration not Jefferson. However, circumstances changed the course of history. First, Lee was appointed to the Committee of Confederation for the writing of the Articles of Confederation and thought that being part of both committees would be too great an effort. Second, his wife became gravely ill during the Philadelphia Convention, forcing him to return home prematurely. A young delegate from Virginia who had shown great promise was selected to take Lee's place, and his name was Thomas Jefferson, and he would quickly become one of the most important individuals in the history of the United States. What most people don't know is that at first, Jefferson had no interest in penning the Declaration. He wanted John Adams to do it instead. Adams writes in his account of the episode in a letter to Timothy Pickering, a politician from Massachusetts and a good friend of Adams, Jefferson proposed to me to make the draft. I said, I will not. You should do it. Oh, no. 
Why will you not? You ought to do it. I will not. Why? Reasons enough. What can be your reasons? Reasons first. You are a Virginian, and a Virginian ought to appear at the head of this business. Reason second. I am obnoxious, suspected, and unpopular. You are very much otherwise. Reason third. You can write ten times better than I can. Well, said Jefferson, if you are decided, I will do as well as I can. Very well. When you have drawn it up, we will have a meeting. And so it was settled. Over the course of 17 days, in between meetings and other governmental affairs, Jefferson penned the Declaration of Independence under the advisement of the committee. It was an act that secured Jefferson's name in history forever. All righty. So that was the beginning of it all, of it becoming a uh, declaration to the crown of England. Okay, well, a couple points we're going to bring up real quick. Number one, Jefferson did not write the Declaration of Independence. He wrote the first draft. And everybody, and I've heard so many so-called scholars and so-called talking heads get this wrong. He wrote the draft. As a matter of fact, I have read that on air on the Uncooperative Radio Show, and it was scathing compared to what the committee released. Jefferson's draft was scathing. I mean, you've read it, haven't you? Yeah, yeah. It, 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 you, can, you can see, um, you know, it, you can find it for yourself. But yeah, he he just went to town on everything. And the committee of five, and I think you're going to get to it in the next article. They took out like 45 parts of his, or, or something like that. Well, I think you're going to get to it. Yeah, well, but they took, no, yeah. They took a big chunk of his his words out of the, the Declaration of Independence. Well, it was controversial. I mean, he put in stuff that um, they they just uh, well, you know. I mean, oh, he just totally went against the the mainstream, as they say today. Yeah, he did. So that's the first myth. We always bust myths on this program. Five people wrote the Declaration of Independence. It was five individuals that decided what the final draft was going to be. And a lot of it was because they figured that the colonies would not agree to what Jefferson had to say. So they wanted unity. That was the, that was the foundation of our uh, founding, the foundation of our founding. They wanted unity, so they had to compromise. We don't have to compromise anymore. We already have the Constitution. We already have the rule of law. There's no, con- there's no compromise with the Constitution. They didn't have one at the time, so they had to compromise. You see the difference, ladies and gentlemen? Well, and they also knew that there were um, issues that could be addressed through the Constitution Later. down the road. Right. They just wanted to get it started. They wanted to make the, the complete uh, cut from the uh the uh, from England and then get into building the country. Yes. The other thing is well I think you can get into that. Um <laughs> they had to make a declaration because they had to have legitimacy to the rest of the world. Yeah, they were trying to I mean this was at a time when they were trying to get uh, support um, from other 
countries, you know, monetary support and, um, you know, um, military. Military, thank you. Military support because being a colony of England, they had no standing to uh, take a loan. You know, they, they it would have to go through the king and parliament. So they had to have their bona fides and they had to prove to these people that they were, you know, the countries that they were asking money and, and supplies and, and military force from that they were actually going to be an independent, you know, a, a, an official valid country. So this right. is the beginning. This is the beginning of them reaching out and, and cutting ties with the crown. Yep. Okay, and now she's going to read some fascinating facts about the declaration that I had no clue. But again, we always learn something on the show, don't we? Oh, we do. I, I thought this was just so cool. So this is another page from constitutionfacts.com, and it's uh, some some facts that you may not know. So... Okay, number one, there is something written on the back of the Declaration of Independence, but it isn't a secret map or code. Instead, there are a few handwritten words that say, Original Declaration of Independence, dated 4th July, 1776. No one knows who wrote this, but it was probably added as a label when the document was rolled up for storage many years ago. Number two, once the Declaration of Independence had been written and signed, Printer John Dunlap was asked to make about 200 copies to be distributed throughout the colonies. Today, the Dunlap broadsides are extremely rare and valuable. In 18, no, 1989, someone discovered a previously unknown Dunlap broadside. It sold for over $8 million in 2000. There are only 26 known surviving Dunlap broadsides today. Although Thomas Jefferson, this is number three, is often called the author of the Declaration of Independence, he wasn't the only person who contributed important ideas. And this, you know, Jefferson was the member of a five-person committee, and that included, of course, uh, Benjamin Franklin, John Adams, Robert Livingston, and Roger Sherman. Robert Livingston, one of the members of the committee who wrote the Declaration of Independence, never signed it. He believed that it was too soon to declare independence and therefore refused to sign. Um, you know, I, this really fascinated me because, you know, watching the uh, the uh, circle circular fire that's going on in, in the Republican Party right now, it's, it's uh, everybody's, you know, knickers are in a twist. But the thing is, is you have to be unified you may not agree on all the tactics, and you may not agree on the thing, but you have to start somewhere. And it, you know, he he didn't uh, he didn't sign this, but you know, it it was signed by enough. So it's like, okay, people, you know, just can the vitriol and just you know, let's unify. So going on now, after I get off my little soapbox and get back on my historian hat, one of the most widely held misconceptions about the Declaration of Independence, and this is number five, is that it was signed on July 4th, 1776. In fact, independence was formally declared on July 2nd, 1776, a date that John Adams believed would be the most memorable epoch in the history of America. 
On July 4, 1776, Congress approved the final text of the Declaration, and it wasn't signed until August 2nd, and then the last person signed it, of course, in November. So you see, it's so sad that now today, and this is me, you know, editorializing again, it is so sad to see that the 4th of July, especially after you hear the story of the woman tonight, that the 4th of July is just about barbecues, car, and mattress sales. Um, it just... Uh, John Adams, I mean, what a what an incredible document, number one. And number two, the courage of these men and, and their families to stand up and, and sign their names in ink. Okay, number six. Okay, let me get down to number six. One of the most, oh, no, I just read that. After Jefferson wrote his first draft of the Declaration, the other members of the Declaration Committee and the Continental Congress made 86 changes to Jefferson's draft, including shortening the overall length by more than a fourth. Number seven, eight, nine, which one am I on? I don't know. When writing the first draft of the Declaration, Jefferson primarily drew upon two sources, his own draft of a preamble to the Virginia Constitution and George Mason's draft of Virginia's Declaration of Rights. See, Virginia had, had really been been um, working on their own, their own colony um, at the time, and they were getting stuff, they're governing together, because uh, the, you know England had come in before this, and one of the problems was that England had come in and the crown had sent their own governors, and they had disbanded the uh, the delegates from the congresses that were being held in each state, and they they basically the crown nullified self governance by the colonies, and that really upset them. You know, after the between the taxation, the blockade, and then you know, being sent over to England to be judged by your peers who had never been to America, and then, and then, you know, not having a voice at all, having your colony's Congress um, or assembly, whatever they called it in each uh, colony, disbanded, though they did meet anyways, but they were just nullified, totally nullified, does this sound familiar? Yes. Oh, okay, moving on. Uh, this this was just fascinating to me. You have to realize I'm very passionate about this whole thing. On December 13, 1952, the Declaration of Independence, along with the Constitution and Bill of Rights, was formally delivered to the National Archives in Washington, D.C., where it has remained since then. The two youngest signers of the Declaration of Independence were both from South Carolina, Thomas Lynch, Jr. and Edward Rutledge. <laughs> yeah, you should read up on Edward Rutledge. He was something else. Of South Carolina were both born in 1749 and were only 26 when they signed the Declaration. Most of the other signers were in their 40s and 50s. Philosopher John Locke's ideas were an important influence on the Declaration of Independence. Thomas Jefferson restated Locke's contract theory of government when he wrote in the Declaration that governments derived their just powers from the consent of the people. And if you haven't read John Locke, get to it. 
Thomas Jefferson and John Adams both died on July 4, 1826, the 50th anniversary of the vote to approve the Declaration of Independence. Yes, they, they, it was amazing um, because during the elections for presidency and vice presidency, um, they became bitter enemies and they didn't talk or correspond for years and years. And then, and I, this is one of the books on my wish, wish list, is their correspondence when they did, um, when they were older and they both started corresponding with each other. And that's how they spent their, their later years, um, writing to each other. And the fact that they died on the same day in July 4th of all days, oh, my God, I mean. It, well, you know, also, there was a soothsayer that told them both while they were being rivals, that I think it was through Benjamin Franklin, because he loved all that kind of mystical stuff, that uh, they were going to become good friends and they were both going to die on the same day. Oh, that's right. Yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Yeah. 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 So it's just, oh, I mean, you know, people think history is so boring. And uh, and it depends on, you know, which book you're reading and, and if you have a teacher who can teach or not. But our history is is so incredible, and I mean that in the literal sense, the definition. It is incredible. It, it's beyond belief, you know, so don't shy away from it. It's really, there's such incredible stories out there. Well, and you have a very good point because the Prague were already taking over the education system at the time uh, many, many years ago, over 100 years ago, and they stopped making American history so fascinating, and they, they mostly <laughs> made European history fascinating. Well, yeah, yeah, and and it, it just, if you listen to any, um, any of the progressive revisionist histories, all we've done is bad things, bad, 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 America's bad, you know, imperialistic, and ah, we've had our dark moments, but the good is so much more than the bad, and a lot of the world wouldn't be in the shape it's in, and I mean this, the good shape that it's in, and people are still flocking to our shores to be free, um, and basically people who come from socialist countries that fled the totalitarianism and the, the, the uh, you know, miserable economy wonder what the hell is going on with us that we're, we're uh, thinking of electing socialists and whatnot. So anyways... Okay. Um, so, let's see. Yeah. Some of the most famous lines in the Declaration of Independence were inspired by Virginia's Declaration of Rights by George Mason. Oh, you should read George Mason, too. Mason said, all men are born equally free and independent. Jefferson's Declaration of Independence said, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal. Mason listed man's natural rights as enjoyment of life and liberty with the means of acquiring and possessing property and pursuing and obtaining happiness and safety. Jefferson lifted man's inalienable rights as life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. You have the right to do this. doesn't mean you're going to be successful. That's up to you. That is not, you know, 
um, that that's not part of the whole thing. Uh, it's the right to do so, not the success. The the prom, you know the promise of success. That's up to you. Okay, nine of the signers of the Declaration died before the American Revolution ended in 1783. In the summer of 1776, when the Declaration was signed, the population of the nation is estimated to have been 2.5 million. And today, the population of the U.S. is more than 300 million. More than that now. The oldest signer of the Declaration was Benjamin Franklin, who was born in 1706 and was therefore already 70 at the time of the Declaration. Franklin went on to help negotiate the Treaty of Alliance with France in 1778 and the Treaty of Paris, which ended the Revolutionary War in 1783. The only signer of the Declaration of Independence to survive beyond the 50th anniversary of the signing was Charles Carroll of Maryland. Carroll died in 1832 when he was 95 years old. Okay, the copy of the Declaration of Independence that is housed at the National Archives is not the draft that was approved by the Continental Congress on July 4th. Instead, it is a formal copy that the Continental Congress hired someone to make for them after the text was approved. This former formal copy was probably made by Timothy Matlack, an assistant to the Secretary of Congress. The copy was signed on August 2nd, 1776. No one who signed the Declaration of Independence was born in the United States of America. The United States didn't exist until after the Declaration was signed. However, all but eight of the signers were born in colonies that would become the United States. The first public reading of the Declaration took place on July 8, 1776 in Philadelphia. A fictional story written in the 1840s suggests that the bell, now known as the Liberty Bell, was rung that day to bring the people together. However, historians now doubt that this happened. The steeple that housed the bell was in very bad condition at the time, and the bell was probably unusable. Although August 2, 1776, was the date of the official signing ceremony, there were several people who signed on later dates. Some of these late signers included Eldridge, Jerry, Oliver Wolcott, Lewis Morris, Thomas McCain, and Matthew Thornton. So there you have some fascinating facts about the Declaration of Independence. Which we were never taught in school. Yeah, well, I, can't, I can't remember. Um, I think we were, let's see. It was more the Constitution. I mean, they, you know, they talked about the Declaration of Independence, and we read it, and um, you know, they, they they talked about. It's so hard to remember now. God, I'm old. Um, <laughs> and I read well, well, and and I had a different education. So, well, I don't know. Did you go to private school? Because I did. No, I didn't go to private school. I went to public school, but I was in Massachusetts. So, right. I, you oh, know, you guys, yeah. Yeah, that we took a lot on the Revolutionary War because, and, and you have to remember my dad, you know, like I said, my dad's idea of a vacation was sports and battlefields. So I learned a lot outside of school. So I don't know what I was taught in school. I can't remember what was what. Well, I know I wasn't taught, I was taught a lot more American history and American literature than um kids in public school because when I actually when I went to public school after being eight years in 
Catholic school, um, they put me they put me in all honors classes. Yeah. I just I mean, I was just like, What are you kidding me? <laughs> you don't know this? Oh God. Yeah, they realized okay. honor math was not my forte. <laughs> but English and history were, so all right, so now we're going to get into an essay that Beth found called The Shout Heard Around the World because this is where the document is actually given to England and other countries to see. Yes. Okay. Now, there's really two here, but we'll start with the Dog Days of the Declaration. This is a really neat site that I just found. I hadn't... Um, come across it before, and it's it's uh, written by a, a, a historian, and he's a professor, and he teaches, he's taught in um, Oregon and California, but don't let that fool you. Uh, he, he is a true historian in the sense that he's not trying to revise history. He's just writing about what happened, you know, like the facts. And things. So it's really it's really good, and it's the shot heard round the world dot wordpress dot com, and his name is Paul R. Huard H U A R D. If you want to look it up, and uh, he's got very a whole lot of uh, um, posts about different parts of our, of our history, and it's very I just was fascinated with it, of course. But anyways, this is when Britain got the news. It was in the middle of August that British civilian and military officials first transmitted news of the Declaration of Independence back to the mother country. He says, I will examine the international significance of the American decision to declare independence in an upcoming post, but for now it's worth noting a few details regarding how the news got back home. And if you want to read that, you can go over to his site and you can, you can find it. Some of the best reporters of the news of the Declaration and its contents were members of the British military fighting the Patriots in America. For example, Admiral Lord Richard Howe, commander of the British forces that had invaded New York City the same year as the Declaration was issued, sent one of the first copies that arrived in London. I wonder what went through his mind as he read the document, which he surely did. Howe sympathized with the American cause and had even written a letter to Benjamin Franklin, a friend of Howe's sister, urging a peace conference. Others dutifully gathered copies for the official record. David Armitage, author of the Declaration of Independence, A Global History, notes that these British officials were so efficient in reporting the news that the five copies they had obtained and sent to be archived among British state papers now comprise the largest collection of original printings of the documents outside of the United States. Reaction in England ranged from enthusiastic support for American independence among Irish radicals to outright horror that Congress had crossed the political Rubicon. But many in England who opposed independence could understand the rational rationale behind the decision. George III, once a beloved king in America, whom colonists truly believed could do no wrong, had stubborn, stubbornly supported his minister's policies that brought war and severe measures against the colonists. His reaction can be ga gauged from his comments to Parliament on October 31, 1776, his first public statement since news of American independence arrived in Great Britain. 
the colonists with a daring and desperate spirit had presumed to set up their rebellious confederacies for independent states. Almost exactly one year later, he had said, those who have long too successfully labored to inflame my people in America by gross misrepresentations and to infuse into their minds a system of opinions repugnant to the true constitution of the colonies and to their subordinate relation to Great Britain, now openly avow their revolt, hostility, and rebellion. Nothing would change his mind. The colonists were rebels outside of his protection. Scots and Irish rebels earlier in the century had faced similar regal condemnation and then faced annihilation. What else could the Americans do? Edmund Burke, one of the staunchest champions of the American cause in Parliament, was no friend of independence, yet he summed up the situation well. For a long time, even amidst the desolations of war and the insults of hostile laws daily accumulated one on another, <coughs> excuse me, the American leaders seem to have had the greatest difficulty in bringing up their people to a declaration of total independence he wrote in a 1777 paper called A Letter to the Sheriffs of Bristol. But the court gazette accomplished what the abettors of independence had attempted in vain. For many in Great Britain, the news of American independence was no surprise at all. Now, let's see what this one. Um, oh, and this is, this is um, when uh, George III addressed Parliament. Let's see. It took two months for news to travel across the Atlantic under the best of circumstances, and the monarch was known for his measured approach to public speaking. However, the king was not amused, making harsh comments about the revolution that he always saw as a rebellion. The History Channel sums up his comments concisely. In the address, the king spoke about the signing of the U.S. Declaration of Independence and the revolutionary leaders who signed it saying, for daring and desperate is the spirit of those leaders whose object has always been dominion and power, that they have now openly renounced all allegiance to the crown and all political connection with this country. The king went on to inform Parliament of the successful British victory over General George Washington and the Continental Army at the Battle of Long Island on August 27, 1776, but warned them that, notwithstanding the fair prospect, it was necessary to prepare prepare for another campaign. George III is one of the most complicated and misunderstood characters in the story of the American Revolution. For many contemporary readers of the Declaration, the lengthy list of charges leveled against George III is a perplexing catalog of indictments whose meaning, for at least most of the grievances, seems lost in obscurity. Today, most Americans, including professional historians, would be hard put to identify exactly what prompted many of the accusations Jefferson hurled against the king. Historians from past generations had a similar response. When the Declaration is read nowadays at Fourth of July celebrations, the audience listens with much attention to the opening paragraph, wrote then noted scholar Sidney George Fisher. But when the 28 charges against the king are reached, the audience listens only out of politeness or patriotic duty. The charges seem very dull and tiresome and mean nothing much to the modern mind, except that one carries away a general impression that the king must have been a horrible monster of tyranny and cruelty against an innocent, childlike, and loving people. The list of grievances rolls over the reputation and character of George III like doomsday, accusing him of old harms for imposing taxes on us without our consent. That is, no taxation 
without representation, the rallying cry of the Stamp Act crisis of 1765 and new terrors, his decision to send Hessian mercenaries to fight Americans is called totally unworthy of the head of a civilized nation, no doubt because of the German soldier's reputation for rape and plunder. The tone of this resume as well is astounding. The king, once the object of paternal respect and the loyal toast, had been a popular monarch in America. Any of the love, affection, and respect George III once enjoyed from his American subjects are ashes in the fires of the revolution. George III's comments did little to assuage those harsh feelings. Even his efforts on both sides of the Atlantic attempted negotiation during the war, the king evinced stubborn refusal to consider any settlement that would grant independence to the American colonists. He was determined not to reign during the dissolution of the British Empire. His comments to Parliament are a confirmation of the great breach that occurred, whether he wanted it or not. However, the rejection of George III in the Declaration is more than long-winded rhetorical flourish. It is the rejection of the last link of loyalty between America and a once-beloved empire. This calculated annihilation of the royal mystique that had prompted Congress to continue seeking reconciliation with the sovereign for months after shots had been fired and a war fought in earnest is jaw-dropping in its goals, implications, and results. Americans, Britons, and the rest of the world observing the revolution would not have missed the gravity of the accusations and how they were framed or simply that they were enumerated in print, a decision that could only be considered blatant treason. In colonial America, it had been the custom to celebrate the king's birthday with all the pomp and pride of subjects who loved their monarch. The fireworks, processions, sermons, and proclamations would usually end with Americans, who were also Britons, offering the words, God save the king, often as part of a toast during the celebrations. Once the Declaration of Independence was circulated throughout the American states, there was a different toast in honor of the document. George George rejected and liberty protected. He had been their father, figure, friend, protector from unbridled power, successor to the royal line that granted the colonies their charters, and guardian against foreign enemies. In the Declaration, he is a figure of tyranny, even evil, cast as an as in his adversary in harsh tones like those used in common sense. The birthday of an irrelevant king was replaced with the birthday of a nation. No other section of the Declaration contains so much poignancy when closely examined. No other, sex, no other section did more to convince America, tis time to part. Ah, I get goosebumps. Mm. So that is how it was in 1776 and 1777. Yep. Again, extremely bold moves. Okay, so it is time. Do you need to take a quick drink? Yeah. <laughs> in a while. Uh, again, this, we're going to be doing this once a month. We're not going to get into the Declaration of Independence as um, comprehensive as we had this show because we're introducing another aspect of the women of the revolution and how we're going to deal with it. But I will be, once a month, reading parts of the Declaration of Independence. I read the first paragraph 
and then next month I'll read another one, and we'll get through the entire declaration probably before we get through all the women. <laughs> there are 56 signers, and, and I believe, um, well, most of them had wives at the time and families. Um haven't read all of them yet, but uh, they were, there's quite a few women. I think there was only one who didn't have a wife. Uh, yeah, I knew there was a couple. Uh, Caesar, Caesar Rodney of Delaware never married. Mm, oh, that's right, yes. So, but all the rest did. And a lot of these women, like, you know, Abigail Adams and um, John Hanks, uh, Dorothy Quincy Hancock, we've actually highlighted on this show. So, yes. But now it's time to talk about Elizabeth and her husband. Yes, Elizabeth Lewis. And this is from the um, womenhistoryblog.com. And you will find this under Women in the American Revolution under Famous Wives. Okay. Like other signers of the Declaration of Independence, Francis Lewis was condemned by the British authorities and a price was put on his head. While Lewis was attending the Continental Congress in the autumn of 1776, British troops destroyed the Lewis estate on Long Island and arrested Elizabeth Lewis, taking her to prison in New York City. She never recovered from the inhumane treatment she received at the hands of the British. Not much is known of Elizabeth Ainsley's Ansley's early life or her ancestors, but there is evidence of her high character and undaunted spirit. Francis Lewis was the son of a Welsh clergyman of the Church of England. He lost both of his parents at the age of four and was raised by a maiden aunt. He was educated in Scotland and England. At age 21, Lewis bought merchandise and sailed for New York as a mercantile agent, one who was authorized by a principal to buy or sell goods and or to acquire a loan by using the principal's goods as collateral. Francis Lewis married Elizabeth Ansley, his business partner's younger sister, on June 15, 1745. The couple would have seven children, but only three survived infancy. Oh, that always gets me. Lewis engaged extensively with foreign commerce and traveled widely in Europe. About 1765, he moved his family to Long Island, where he acquired a 200-acre estate at Whitestone. He retired from business, but returned to New York in 1771 for the purpose of establishing his son, Francis Lewis, Jr., in business. Lewis moved his family back to Long Island in 1775, and there Elizabeth resided permanently, though her husband and sons were away a large portion of the time. The issue of taxation without representation turned Lewis's loyalties from the crown to the revolutionary movement, and he became known as one of New York, New York City's leading radicals. The Committee of 50, which was formed in New York in 1774 to protest the closing of the Port of Boston, became the Committee of 51 when Lewis became the 51st member on May 16th. Because of British encroachment on human rights, Lewis became alarmed and sprang into action. He joined the Sons of Liberty, a secret society formed to protest the Stamp Act, as a fellowship to work against undue power exercised by the mother country and became active in politics. 
Francis Lewis devoted his attention entirely to public affairs after his election to the First Continental Congress in 1775 and became one of the signers of the Declaration of Independence in 1776. He was a delegate to the Continental Congress from 1776 to 79. To further the cause of freedom, he spent a large portion of the fortune he had earned from his business to purchase provisions and clothing for the Continental Army and would end the war virtually penniless. Elizabeth Lewis was as imposing a figure as her husband in the American Revolution. She was endowed with unusual intelligence and actively conducted the education of her children. At her home, whether in New York or at Whitestone, Long Island, she was a favorite with the leaders of the early republic. She was fiercely patriotic and willingly faced death for the sake of her convictions. Like the other New York signers, Francis Lewis was condemned by the British authorities and a price was put on his head. They thirsted for revenge upon a man who had dared to affix his signature to a document that proclaimed the independence of America. In the autumn of 1776, the British occupied Long Island and the troops were sent to seize the lady and destroy the property. Lewis probably would have been hanged if he had been there. As the soldiers advanced on one side, a ship of war from the other fired upon the house. Elizabeth Lewis looked calmly on. A shot from the vessel struck the board on which she stood. One of her servants cried, run, mistress, run. Elizabeth replied, another shot is not likely to strike the same spot and did not move. The soldiers entered the house and began to plunder and destroy their belongings. One of them threw himself at her feet and tore the buckles from her shoes, which looked like gold but were not. All is not gold that glitters, she remarked. The soldiers destroyed their country home, books, papers, pictures, and furniture, and arrested Elizabeth, who was in her late 50s and already in poor health, and took her to prison in New York City. For some time, she was not allowed a bed or any extra clothing and only the coarse and scanty food that was doled out each day to the prisoners. For okay, let's just stop you right there. Okay. Because that's really important. That she was 50 years old. Yep. Because we've done another lady that was in her 50s that uh, did a Paul Revere-type ride. And it's just amazing to me. Now I guess I understand, after I read that, why she never recovered because of her age. And she was already in poor health. So she was weakened already. And, but she still had the fortitude to go through with this and to support her husband doing this. Yes. So, again, another amazing woman. Yes. And, and, and she had, had lost four of her children in infancy. Uh, On top of all that. Uh, yeah. And, and she, she was alone. Her husband was gone um, a lot of the time during the 70s, and, uh, you know, she had this this household to take care of, and, 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 and the household back then were, were businesses um, in, in a respect. Um, you know, they had, she had employees, and, and they had fields to, to harvest, and, and, you know, things had to be made, and so, you know, it was like running a business. You know, it wasn't just, you know, Loading the dishes in the dishwasher. <laughs> yeah, I know that feeling. Yeah. <laughs> My life isn't just loading dishes in the dishwasher. 
Neither. Yep. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I don't have one. <sighs> okay. Well, I just wanted to point that out that her age was a factor. And it's just amazing to me that they're going to take this 50-year-old woman and cart her away. Oh, oh, yeah, yes. Well, she was, you know, married to a, a traitor, therefore she was a traitor, so. And the crown was not amused. Okay, for weeks this continued, during which time she was not permitted to communicate with anyone outside. Then a black man, an old family servant who had, a lot, who had followed her to the city, managed to find out where she was and to smuggle some small articles of clothing and some food into her and also carried letters through the lines to her friends, which could have gotten him shot and killed in a minute. Um, gee, he was... Um, I notice they say family servant. I just realized that. I don't know. Um, I don't think he was a slave. The matter was taken up by Congress and referred to the Board of War and demands made upon the British for her better treatment. The British were bent on making an example of her because of her wealth and prominence, and the poor woman found little relief. Held in a damp, unheated, filthy prison, Elizabeth Ansley Lewis became very ill. Finally, after nearly three months, the matter was brought to the attention of General George Washington who ordered the arrest of Mrs. Barron, wife of the British Paymaster General, and Mrs. Kempe, wife of the Attorney General of Pennsylvania, at their homes in Philadelphia. The women were confined to their own homes under guard in the intimation carried to the British authorities that unless an exchange was arranged immediately, they would be subjected to the same treatment as was being received by Mrs. Lewis. The exchange was made, but Elizabeth was not permitted to leave New York City. Hardly had Elizabeth taken a deep breath when the aged black servant who had remained with her doing what little he could to help fell ill. He was a Roman Catholic, and he would not die without last rites. There was not a priest in New York because the city was under martial law. Elizabeth sent a messenger to Philadelphia who found a priest and smuggled him through the British lines just in time to administer last rites to the dying man who passed away in peace. Elizabeth Lewis never recovered from the inhumane treatment she had received at the hands of the British. Her suffering and privation were too much even for a strong constitution. After some months, she was allowed to join her husband in Philadelphia. It was plain to see, however, that her health was failing. Early in 1779, Francis Lewis asked for a leave of absence from the Continental Congress in order to care for his wife. Julia Delafield, a granddaughter of the Signer wrote in her biography of Francis Lewis, Mrs. Lewis had more than one opportunity of showing the steady purpose, the firmness of nerve that would have distinguished her had she been a man. To Francis Lewis, she was heaven's best gift. When his adventurous spirit led him to embark on long and perilous voyages, he knew that he left his children to the care of an able as well as a tender mother who could train her, their characters as well as protect their interests. The conduct and careers of her children is the best eulogy of Mrs. Frances Lewis. Elizabeth Lewis was driven to an untimely death by the hardships she was forced to undergo from the British because her husband was a signer of the Declaration of Independence. She contracted a fever which developed into lingering consumption, which was TB, tuberculosis, and died within two years of being released from prison. She lived to see her children married, but not to see her country liberated from British rule. 
Francis Lewis retired from Congress in 1781, and his last years were confined to frugal and modest living with his two sons. Most of his independent fortune was given to his countrymen for the cause of independence. His old age was happy and cheerful, and he enjoyed the society of his children and grandchildren, and he also served as a vestryman for the Trinity Church in New York City. Francis Lewis died at age 89 on December 31, 1802 at New York City. He left only $15,000, not poverty-stricken, but a long fall from the wealthy merchant of pre-revolution days, and he was buried in the yard of Trinity Church. How many women have we have we talked about where their their marriage was just so devoted and and loving, and these men were away a lot? You know, maybe that's the secret. <laughs> well, it's not only that; they were devout Christians. Yes, they were devout Christians, and character was very important, and um, and education. Virtue. They're missing from a lot of parenting these days. And virtue. <laughs> yes. Ethics. Morality. But anyways, what a what a incredible story. Well. And you know, today. I mean, as her granddaughter, the granddaughter wrote, the conduct and careers of her children is the best eulogy of Miss Frances Lewis. Today, that would so upset those old irrelevant bra burners of the feminist movement. You know, I mean, God, that to me, the fact that my daughter is doing what she's doing in the Army and as a mother and and schooling and everything, I mean... I am so freaking proud of her, and that, to me, is the best thing I've ever done, was that child, you know, and a lot of it in spite of me, but, you know. Um, But it always upset me that the women, the modern woman, viewed motherhood and, and, and raising children to be good people and productive people and ethical people with virtue, um as a bad thing. Oh, that, you know, you could do better. What's better? Oh, I'm, you will, I'm, I'm editorializing again. Sorry. That <laughs> just got me, though. What a beautiful thing to say about a woman. Well, and I say it all the time on my other radio show, the most important, important job on this planet is being a mother. Yep. I am sorry. I don't care if you're an atheist or you're a prog or an agnostic. We were meant to procreate. And he, God entrusted women with that that task, which is extremely important. Yep. Women just need to get over themselves. I know. I know. Um, you know, the, the biggest thing, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to editorialize a little bit here. The biggest... <laughs> thing in my life that I went al- I went along with these feminazis, okay? No, me too. I was you know, I was a seventies, you know, sixties baby, mm-hmm. but growing up seventies, which is post sixties, which is when it was full full blown. Everyone thinks it was in the sixties. No, it was carried over to the seventies. Okay? Oh yeah. 
And I went along with all of that. Mm-hmm. And full disclosure, I had an abortion because I didn't want, I, I couldn't have the kid. I didn't have the father, blah, 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 blah. All of the rationale that they're telling young women today, I fell for. Yep, me too. And subsequently, I could never have a child for the rest of my life. I don't know what they did to me. I have no proof, but I couldn't have children. And I have been sterile ever since. Well, they at that time, they were, were you poor? Were you uh, single and poor? Yeah. Sterilizing young women in hospitals. I know um, a friend of mine was sterilized when she went in. Um, uh, she was sick. And then they found she was pregnant. She didn't know she was pregnant, but they found she was pregnant, and they um, basically aborted her and sterilized her. This was going on at this, in, in the 60s and 70s. If you were a poor woman who was single, you might want to check that out. Well, again, like I said, I got robbed of the single most important thing that would have been in my life is a mother. Yeah. And you were lucky that you got to be a mom. Yep, I am. All right, before I start getting too teary-eyed, <laughs> we are, so we're going to talk about prisons during the American Revolution. And this is 10 Facts About Prisoners of War from allthingsliberty.com. Thanks to Deb for doing all this wonderful research for the show. Uh, Let's see. There are as many stories as there were prisoners, but some common factors affected most of them. Some were typical of the era, while others were specific to this war, which had many distinctive, distinctive attributes that made the handling and fate of prisoners different than what either side was accustomed to. Here's a list of the overreaching, overarching factors that the British and Americans had to grapple with in dealing with the men they captured. I'm going to have to take a quick break. My glasses are so filthy, I cannot even see this article. <laughs> but I, I do want to say one thing. When I read this, I had no idea because this definitely was never talked about. And I wanted to ask you, did George Washington talk about this in the book that you had on him? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, he he was um, he was quite, well, this whole thing, and we'll get into it, but this was a whole new situation, especially for Britain, because um, these were British subjects. Right. <laughs> and they didn't quite know whether they were just, like, criminals or POWs, you know. Right. Henry especially. Or traitors, or how do we classify them so that we know what to do with them? You know, so they. But George Washington was. He he was. I mean, they had a different way of um, of. You know, POWs. I mean, officers were treated differently than than your basic grunt, um, and it was exchanges were. You know they were there was leverage, and which is why he he took those two women in Philadelphia and made them just little prisoners of their own home, and then threatened to we will do to you what you are doing. And he said that many times. 
um, throughout the war, he that was his threat. You treat our our prisoners badly, we treat yours the same way. Not that he wanted to, because he was a gentleman, and he, he you know, they he understood that they were British soldiers, you know, or, or loyalists. You know, he understood that whole thing, but he he could not. He could not. He really had a hard time with the way that um, the the prisoners were treated, uh, and he worked it. He he really um, he spoke to Congress about it, and had uh, you know he had rules set up, and and he he just really, you know, if, if you mess with our people, we mess with your people. So you know. Think about it, <laughs> and and he, you know, it just and traitors. Oh, anybody who was disloyal to, uh, you know, was a spy or somebody, you know, like Andre, John Andre. I mean, that whole thing with um, no, oh, the uh, what's his name, the one that uh, what the Peggy Shippen's um, I can think of as Aaron Burr, and that's not him. Who was the traitor, the the, the well-known traitor? <laughs> My mind just went blank. Benedict Arnold Benedict? Uh, yeah, Benedict Arnold. Benedict Arnold, right. He broke Washington's heart. He did. That that was, I mean, Washington didn't have much for, use for traitors to the cause. Um, and when he found out that, that you were a spy, you, you were treated accordingly. But... And many times hanged as John Andre was, but if you if you turned on Washington, I mean, it just broke his heart. Okay, so let's get on to the overreaching factors. My glasses are clean. Oh, good. Nations provided for their own men in captivity. Each government. This is number one. Each government funded the clothing and feeding of its own men held in captivity by the enemy, which is really, really unique because how many wars have we been in and we're the ones that are taking care of them? Like, Gitmo comes to mind. They should have all been shot. Mm-hmm. Either by directly delivering it, providing funds to their captives to purchase it, or reimbursing the opposing government for it, food and clothing of prisoners remain the responsibility of their own government rather than the one that captured them. This was the theory anyway but putting it into practice presented many challenges. In their struggle to build and maintain a military infrastructure, neither the Continental Congress nor the individual state governments had established systems to provide for prisoners in British hands. British authorities did not relish the idea of sending money to their prisoners to buy food and other necessities, knowing that it would end up in the hands of their adversaries. And this is really, um, this is kind of important, because how many times have we... And it, it got me confused, and I never brought it up. But how many times did we report on a, a husband of one of the ladies that we were talking about get captured in that colony, in that state, but they're transferred to another state? Right. Because of this, this right here, that they didn't have the facilities. Right. That one state would have more facilities for them than another one would. Yeah, in some of the battles, there were, you know, like hundreds of, of soldiers taken prisoners on both sides. You know, they just they just rounded them up. 
on both sides, and suddenly you had like 500 extra people, and where do you put them? Um, you know, these were villages. They, these weren't like today's cities, even the cities. Um, they they had they didn't have. Uh, I mean, gosh, three stories. I think was was the highest building um, at the time. Three stories, you know, and and you just had little stores. You know, there were no Safeways. There were no libraries like we know them today, or, or courthouses like we know them today. Um, or warehouses where they're housing all these illegal ground pieces of crap right now. Right. So you have to, if you have to figure you had a battle or, you know, some kind of um, altercation and you took prisoners or you went into a town and rounded up all the patriots, where do you put them? You know, you could only put so many in these little dwellings that they had around the little villages. Number two, prisoners of war presented an unusual challenge for the British government. Treating rebellion subjects as bona fide prisoners of war would be an acknowledgement of American independence and its presence as a legitimate nation entitled to all attending international protocols. I thought that was extremely important to bring out. Yes. They had they had this problem because if they if they acknowledged that this was legitimate, then that was saying that America was a legitimate country to other countries, and therefore they could uh, they could petition for um, help, right? Which we were doing anyway. I mean, we were we were going out, and we've talked about this many many times. We were going out to all different countries already. I mean, at the beginning of the war, even before the war, we were trying to get them, you know, to to see what the plight was get their, the country's understanding in case in the, in we had ambassadors going out right from the beginning. I mean, there was ambassadors in um, France and Spain and um, Deutschland. What are they? <laughs> What's yeah. going now? Russia. What's going now, right? Let's see. Uh, Russia. What's going now? Um, I'm trying to think of all the, yeah, it is Spain, France, um, Belgian, uh, you know, the, the other part of what was France at the time, um, Russia, Denmark. Denmark, that's what I was thinking of, Denmark. But we already had, um, ambassadors going out. But if they, if they, if England acknowledged us in this way, again, it was a big challenge for them. I, I agree with this. And this is something that people do not bring up about being a legitimate country. You have to, if you look at all the wars, like say in Iraq, okay, we, we help them draft up what is their constitution, which, by the way, I have no idea why we have not ever given any other country that we have liberated or that became its own country our form of government. It drives me insane. Yes. And I, understand, I understand that they don't, they, they weren't brought up the way we were. I understand that they have a different culture. But at least give them this freaking option. Yeah. You know? Uh, it, it's just, well, they, you know. Mm. <laughs> well, we won't get into the one world order because that's what, they, no, that's that's... what they want. Oh, did you hear, Rue? Hey! I heard my buddy. Yeah, he's not that loud because I have the windows all closed because it's nasty outside, but uh, he, he will get louder. 
(laughs) So anyway, this is really important that they did not want to give legitimate, uh, uh, what did I say, legitimate nation entitled to all attending international protocol. They did not want that. But with an ultimate goal of reconciliation and keeping the American colonies within the British Empire, prisoners could not reasonably be subjected to laws against treason that were punishable by death because England wanted us back. They didn't want to give us up, okay? A lot of people maybe not will not get that. They didn't want to kill us all and put us all in prison. They wanted us back. They just wanted us to stop and be good little children and good little subjects. This conundrum was never resolved until peace negotiations at the end of the war. Instead, handling of prisoners was left largely to local military authorities in America. Number three, prisoners of war presented an unusual challenge for the Continental Congress. With each state able to take and hold prisoners to the extent each was willing, there was initially no uniform way to set policy about captivity, parole, exchanges, and other issues. And this is what Deb, you just brought up. This was a really big challenge for George Washington. He took the helm on this. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is a lot. He had a lot of weight on his shoulders, and I am so shocked that he became the president. Because I'll tell you, we talked about George and Martha Washington, and they were tired. Oh, they were. <laughs> I just wanted to go back to their... To he their wanted life. to be a farmer. He just wanted to go back to his field. I know. That's the same with Jefferson. I mean, he was tired, too, because when he was, he's the only official, uh, the only vice president that ever resigned. He was like, I've had enough. Yeah. <laughs> These are the politicians we want, though, Deb. I know. I know. The ones that Some don't these people do are it. Gonna stay. These people stay until they die. Yeah. It's disgusting. Oh, yeah. You know, hey, they get goodies. Rich be a career. Yeah, it's not supposed to be. That's why they were okay. Imagine that. Hmm. What? Term limits, you know. I love the fact that George Washington, you know, said at the end of two terms, that's it. <laughs> Going home. Thank you. Enough is enough. I am not a king. Yeah, I wish this one wasn't, but he is. Oh, God, yeah. While the Continental Congress described general rules overseeing prisoners, it delegated much of the actual work to local committees of safety. Their authority allowed them to order the incarceration of prisoners with further restrictions in solitary confinement. Their limited freedom when allowed out on parole for starting the distance they could travel from the local jail, the time of their departure and their curfew, and accommodating their various personal needs, including access to money, food, clothing, medical care, and religious services. Notice, very young government. What is it doing? It's delegated to local authorities because that's where it should be. Yep. And local people. Number four, prisoners suffered from corrupt practices of their captors. The delivery of necessities to prisoners of war was subject to the whims of civilian sufflers selling their goods and inn and tavern keepers providing lodging and food and drinks to those on parole. Bribery was frequently required, making life even more difficult for prisoners with little money. British prisoners held captive by Americans were often distributed among many towns in widely different conditions, and their hard money was highly sought after by cash-starved Americans. This subjected the prisoners to many corrupt practices by their captors. American prisoners held captive by the British were cramped into very limited spaces 
and their food was often delivered by contractors who stood to profit by skimping. This also subjected the prisoners to corrupt practices by their captors. Five, prisoners of war could work to earn money. Large numbers of British and German prisoners supplemented the labor force in regions where they were held, which helped to offset manpower problems caused by men being away for, for the war. While some men could work within their places of captivity, most were granted paroles, either for the daylight hours or to live at their workplace. Farm laborers were in high demand in rural Connecticut, Pennsylvania, and other places, and prisoners were hired out to live and work on farms. Tradesmen such as shoemakers provided valuable services, some even working in factories producing goods for the Continental Army. And we did not know this before. We've talked about supply and how they got supplies. And this is all new to me. I had no clue. Did you? No. I mean, I really didn't. So you think about how complicated this war was, Deb. I mean, not only was it father against son and father against brother and a civil war, but now you have these prisoners working on your farm. (laughs) That were the enemy. God. It just gets more and more complicated. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, the relative freedom of working led to rampant desertion among British and German prisoners, some to settle in America and some to make their way to British-held regions. The labor market was different in the refugee-saturated places where American prisoners were held, but a few prisoners nonetheless managed to make and sell simple goods to earn a little precious cash. The difference being that the American prisoners, the Americans held their own land, so we could put the prisoners on their land because it was American's land. The British didn't have that much land here for the Americans to work for them. Prisoners six, prisoners of war, could enlist to the, into the opposing army. Prisoners could be released on whatever terms the captains chose. Both sides tried to tempt prisoners into gaining freedom by enlisting into their own armies. For the prisoners, it was not so much as a question of loyalty, but of improving their immediate, li- immediate living conditions. Some faithfully served their new army, but many used enlistment, enlistment simply as an opportunity to escape. The Continental Congress forbade the practice of enlisting deserters and prisoners, but the prohibition was often ignored by recruiters desperate for soldiers. Some American prisoners enlisted into loyalist regiments for service in America, while others joined British regiments destined for service in the West Indies. Not only did thousands of individuals serve on both sides during the war, Many switched sides more than one. And that would be a problem to, that I would seem to me with uh, all these generals and colonels with spies. How do they know these people weren't spies in their, their regiment, you know? Yeah. And they were. There were many. <laughs> yeah. Seven, the Americans had trouble housing prisoners. Without adequate space in jails and no other established facilities, they initially repurposed a large barracks building in Lancaster, Pennsylvania, far from the front line. In other states, prisoners were dispersed in jails and other makeshift facilities. Later in the war, prison camps were established in Winchester, Virginia, York, Pennsylvania, and other places. Supporting and guarding large numbers of prisoners was, regardless, a burden on every community. Eight, the British had trouble housing prisoners. Far from home, the British found it difficult to house a large number of prisoners once war broke out. Most territories firmly in British control consisted of environs close to port cities. There were no isolated open locations to build incarceration facilities, 
that were not dangerously close to front lines. Like I said, they didn't have the land here, or the Americans had the land. They resorted to using abandoned buildings, most famously Livingston's Sugar House in New York City, for Army prisoners. Oh, I, I forgot to tell everyone, as full disclosure, I was born and raised on Long Island, and I don't know where this is. <laughs> living in Sugar House. I'm probably not there anymore. But uh, yeah, I was born and raised on. I was born in Manhattan, the island of Manhattan, and I was raised on Long Island. Naval prisoners were held on board obsolete warships. There were exceptions, particularly in places like Rhode Island and Charleston, South Carolina, where captured soldiers were held on ships and captured sailors were kept on land. Nine officers were treated differently from soldiers and sailors. Common practice during this era was for captured military officers to be treated as gentlemen, not confined in jails or prisons, but in houses or inns. And that's why a lot of times when we talk about these ladies, the patriot ladies at their homes and their mansions got taken over with, they did have a lot of these um, uh, officers in their homes. Okay, they were afforded paroles that allowed them free movement within a few miles of the location where they were held. They had access to and authority over their locally held personnel, visiting them, negotiating for their well-being, and maintaining a semblance of military discipline. You have to know, even to this day, it is expensive, it is time-consuming, and it is uh, the officers are trained differently, okay? When we lose an officer in any of our armed services, that's a big loss, ladies and gentlemen. Not to not to say that the grunts on the on the ground are not worthless. are worthless. They're not that. There's every part of the military is is sacred and important. But there's a lot of training that goes into being an officer, right? Yeah, and and in the um, mid middle mid east wars that we've been in, the officers. This is why the uh, uniforms have changed. They take off their rank because the officers are the first to be shot. Yeah. Yep. This is why I have a problem with this women being in combat. This is profoundly stupid. Okay. Uh, just for the fact that women uh, do have the population babies, um, I'd rather them not be shot. Mm. You know? I mean, we need women to have children so that we can go forward. Are raped and tortured. Right, exactly. Okay, let's see. Da, 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 da. They also, of course, abetted those plotting to escape. At the onset of the war, British authorities did not recognize American officers as being members of an established military, instead treating all captives as common enemies of government. Congress responded by threatening to treat captured British officers in the same manner. Well, you just said that's what George Washington said. Uh, George Washington was instrumental in that. <laughs> in some cases, actually doing so. Throughout the war, no overarching agreement was ever reached on how officers were to be treated, leading to a myriad negotiations and individual experiences. Number 10, some American prisoners were sent to Great Britain. Large numbers of, this would really, I'm sorry, this would really bite if they captured me and they sent me to Great Britain. Are you kidding? Yes. My Lord, I'd rather be killed. Large numbers of Americans were captured at sea, primarily sailors on privateer and vessels. Many of these prisoners were held not in America, but in Great Britain. A few army prisoners, including the famous Ethan Allen, were sent to England as well. 
Prisoners were held in military prisons where they struggled with conditions similar to those faced by prisoners of both sides in America. They struggled to improve their lot by making and selling what they could, negotiating with guards and the local population, and plotting escape. While in Europe, Benjamin Franklin worked arduously on the behalf of captive American seamen, seeking humane treatment and their exchange for British captives. He instituted the practice of sea paroles, allowing many hundreds of captured British sailors their freedom. The British refused to reciprocate in the release of Americans, not recognizing American privateers as being equivalent to British naval personnel. Uh, And that's the end. So, very, 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 very complicated, people. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Now, this was new. You know they hadn't um, they hadn't been through this before. Uh, either side, I mean, this was like, oh my, you know the the Americans and of course the British were so arrogant because they were the the greatest empire on earth at the time. They they just couldn't believe that the Americans would be victorious <laughs> at all. No. Now, we're talking about prisoners. I'm going to read an account of one of these prisoners, and then I'm going to read, well, let me get to this first. And then, uh, Deb, you are going to talk about the women of New York. The prisoners of New York, you mean? Yes. Yes. Okay. All right, so. The hero of the story is a young man named Elias Cornelius, a native of Suffolk County. That's where I was raised, Suffolk County, Long Island. (laughs) It was a wonderful place to live back then, not now. (laughs) We know little of his background except that when 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 the Revolutionary War began, he was studying medicine with Dr. Samuel Lansom, a prominent physician in North Hempstead. In the autumn of 1776, probably not long after Washington's forces were driven off Long Island, Elias fled across Long Island Sound to New England. It was a decision made by thousands of Long Island residents, many of whom would not return to the island for another six or seven years. Okay. Um, The journal tells us that early in 1777, now barely 20 years of age, Elias was commissioned a surgeon's mate in the American Army and attached to a regiment of Continentals from Rhode Island. The following August, while Recording British positions near Eastchester, he blundered into an enemy patrol and was taken prisoner. He and a dozen other American captives were stripped of their possessions and marched down to New York City under heavy guard, passing through a gauntlet of jeering, stone-throwing Tories as they reached the outskirts of town. Their destination was a sugar house on, on Crown, now Liberty Street, just east of Broadway. This massive five-story stone building, one of the largest structures in the 18th century city, and you were talking about that, Deb, they were like five, they were like three stories. This one's five. Mm. It was unusual. Yeah, it was tall. Yeah. All right. Had been commandeered as a prison for rebels rounded up after the disastrous Battle of Long Island and after the capitulation of Fort Washington that followed two months later. By the time Elias got there, it held 800 men. The sugar house was filthy beyond description, Elias recalled. 
the top of the house was open to the weather so that when it rained, the water ran along and through every floor, and on that account, it was impossible for us to keep dry. The sergeant in charge was vicious and corrupt. He stole much of their food, leaving Elias and the men captured with him only four pounds of poor Irish pork and four pounds of moldy bread for four days. When Elias asked for pen and paper to petition for parole, the sergeant gave him a beating instead. Then he... He then sent Elias to another prison where he was sequestered in a basement dungeon with several other Americans. This was the equally notorious provost, formerly the city's new bowel, which stood in the northeast corner of the municipal common, now City Hall Park, a hideous place, Elias called it. Okay. The only thing that kept him going, he said, was the knowledge that many of my dear countrymen had previously suffered greater punishment than mine, and that many of them died and bled in their country's cause and defense. A week or so later, he was moved upstairs to a large room, packed with other prisoners, among them the famous Ethan Allen, who was an improvement, Elias wrote, but still onerous. While I was in this place, we were not allowed to speak to any friend, not even out of the window, he recalled. I have frequently seen women beaten with canes and ramrods who have come to the prison windows to speak to their husbands, sons, or brothers, and officers taken and put in a dungeon just for asking for cold water. Now, we, I'm glad that you found this, Deb, because this is showing what Elizabeth might have gone through. Yeah. At her age of 50 and her being weak. Yeah. All right, so I'm going to read a little bit about the Battle of Long Island, because it was mentioned. And then we're going to get into the New York City prisons that Deb has for us. And it's very important to know, because this has to go with, um, what is it, what of, of engagement, the EOCs? What is that? What, what are they called, the, of engagement? Is it called, it's an EOC, but I don't know how they, or ALCs. Oh, ACUs? Yeah, you know, the the engagement rules. Oh, the ROEs, rules of engagement. Oh, okay, rules of engagement. Okay, ROEs. Okay, that's what it is. This has to do with each side and their ROEs, their rules of engagement. It doesn't just go with. It doesn't just have to do with how you're killing the enemy or how you're handling the enemy. It has to do with how the prisoners as well, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, so this is the Battle of Long Island, and I don't think I ever. Learned this in school. <laughs> After the British evacuated Boston on March 17, 1776, General George Washington guessed correctly that their next target would be New York. By mid-April, Washington had marched his 19,000 soldiers to Lower Manhattan. He strengthened the batteries that guarded the harbor and constructed forts in northern Manhattan and on Brooklyn Heights across the East River on Long Island. I was born in Lower Manhattan. Washington waited throughout June for the British to appear, hoping that somehow his undisciplined troops could hold off an attack, which he was certain would come in Manhattan. In early July, 400 British ships with 32,000 men commanded by General William Howe arrived at Staten Island. When Howe offered a pardon to the rebels, Washington answered, those who have committed no fault want no pardon. While he was still convinced that the British would attack Manhattan, he sent more troops to Brooklyn. This is from mountainvernon.org. Washington placed General Israel Putnam in charge of Brooklyn Heights and stationed General John Sullivan to the south and Lord Sterling to the southwest on the heights of Guan. 
He posted guards along the main roads leading to the heights, but failed to secure the rarely used Jamaica Pass to the east. This proved to be a costly mistake since General Howe planned to lead 10,000 men through the pass on the evening of August 26th and attack the American, um, Americans on Brooklyn Heights from the rear. At the same time, General Leopold Philip von Heister would launch his Hessians against Sullivan's troops, while the Redcoats of General James Grant would attack Sterling's position. Early in the morning of August 27th, British soldiers fired on American pickets stationed near the Red Lion Tavern at the crossroads in Brooklyn. Washington hurried across the East River from Manhattan, but could do little more than observe the fight from a redoubt on Cobble Hill. Sullivan's men fought bravely, but were cut down by Hessian artillery and bayonets. When he realized that the main British force had come through the Jamaican Pass and would soon surround him, Sullivan ordered his men to retreat to Brooklyn Heights before he himself was captured. General Sterling held off the British for several hours, but retreated when he also realized that he would be surrounded. He led 400 Maryland soldiers in a desperate fight at the Old Stone House, giving his soldiers time to flee before he was taken prisoner. Washington looked on down, looked down on the terrible scene, could only remark, "Good God, what brave fellows I must lose." Um, General Howe halted the fighting by the early afternoon and directed his men to dig trenches around the American position on the next day. Before they could be surrounded, Washington ordered his men to evacuate Long Island. From late in the evening of August 29th to dawn on the following morning, Washington watched as 9,000 Continentals were rowed back to Manhattan. As the sun came up, a fog miraculously descended on the remaining men crossing the river. According to eyewitnesses, George Washington was the last man to leave Brooklyn. Now, I brought this up because this is Elizabeth was around during this battle. She was on Long Island. She lived there permanently. Yeah, well, so that's how she got captured because Long Island was was captured. Yep, and she was was around while this horrific battle was happening. Again, we really don't want this. Nope. Anyhow, I think it's time for you to do your little part on the prisons as well. Okay, so this is a continuation from the same uh, article. It uh, it says the story of Elias Cornelius, who Susan just read about pre- pre- before the Battle of Long Island, is a reminder that from 1776 until 1783, New York City was the headquarters of British operations in New- North America. It was also the pr- principal detention center for captured American insurgents civilians as well as soldiers and sailors, officers and enlisted men alike. As young Elias' story also tells us, captured American insurgents were detained in a variety of public and private buildings scattered around the city. The municipal municipal almshouse and jail, a half dozen churches, the classrooms of King's College, now Columbia University, oh, how we have fallen, a couple of sugar houses and one or two taverns. Broken-down warships were also pressed into service as prisons after they had been stripped of sails, masts, and other usable equipment. Eventually, those hulks would all be anchored in Wallabout Bay, a shallow inlet on the Brooklyn side of the East River. 
Remember, today is the site of the old Brooklyn Navy Yard. Yeah, that's where my mother was in the Navy. <laughs> These facilities, most of which remain in use for the duration of the war, were shockingly overcrowded. 20 men per cell, per cell in the city jail, 800 in one of the churches, over 1,100 in the steaming hold of the Jersey, most notorious of the Wallabout hulks. And if you ever um, get a chance to read the story. There's books out on, on the Jersey, and it's just terrific. Prisoners never had enough to eat, and what they did have was barely edible. Their clothes were infested with ticks and lice. The water sank. The slot buckets and necessary tubs overflowed. Anyone lucky enough to survive the rampant typhus, dysentery, and smallpox eventually succumbed to the scurvy, which made their teeth fall out and caused their gums and eyes to bleed incessantly. Those who got out alive told of comrades so hungry they ate their own shoes and clothes, of prison ships whose decks were slippery with excrement and wagons rumbling through the cobblestone streets with corpses stacked like cordwood of bodies flung carelessly into Wallabout Bay or hastily interred by the dozen on nearby beaches. As it happens, the account left by Elias Cornelius is only one of many they don't make pleasant reading, um, and they go on to talk about the different uh, uh, um, entries, you know, from the different prisoners. It's a, it's quite an, an extensive article, and uh, they uh, it was a horrible, horrible thing. Um, and let's see. Um, Officers generally had an easier time of it. Those of sufficiently high rank were allowed to find lodgings in the city. Others, perhaps four or five hundred in all, were paroled to Flatbush, New Utrecht, Gravesend, New Lots, and the other Kings County villages where they boarded with local farmers until officially exchanged. But they were the lucky exceptions. Altogether, something like 30,000 Americans were confined in New York at one time or another during the Revolutionary War. How many of those 30,000 perished will never be known for certain, though the available, available evidence suggests that the overall mortality rate hovered between 60 to 70 percent. Of the 2,700 men taken captive at Fort Washington in November 1776, 1,100 died over the winter and another 900 on the way home after they were let go, an effective mortality rate of almost 75 percent. There were... Uh, Let's see, a 60% mortality rate would mean an overall total of some 18,000 fatalities. That may not seem like a lot by modern standards, but remember that the population of the entire United States in 1780 was under 3 million people, less than half the size of New York City today. During the Revolutionary War, in other words, more Americans lost their lives in the prisons of New York and the prison ships of Brooklyn than anywhere else, between two or three times as many as those who died in combat. The impact on local communities was absolutely crushing. Oh, so, uh, okay. Okay, and this, uh, this part I love. It says, granted that this is a gruesome story, almost certainly more gruesome than we've realized, but what difference does it make at this point in time to our understanding of the American Revolution? Let me suggest several answers to that question. First, it's more important than ever to know how the United States was made, not merely by those gentlemen in powdered wigs and knee breeches we have heard so much about in recent years, but also by thousands upon thousands of mostly ordinary people who believed in something they considered worth dying for. 
<coughs> excuse me. I'm sure you've noticed the recent uh, burst of interest in the so-called founding fathers, not only a new round of books on the likes of Thomas Jefferson, Benjamin Franklin, and George Washington, but the critically acclaimed TV miniseries on John Adams and a glitzy exhibit on Alexander Hamilton at the New York Hist Historical Society. You'd think they want American independence all by themselves, but there are thousands upon thousands of their countrymen who have largely been erased from the story. Those who perished in captivity often had a choice, too. British recruiters routinely scoured the prisons and prison ships looking for men willing to buy their freedom by enlisting in the Royal Army or Navy. Many did, but most did not, and their solidarity in the face of almost certain death tells us something important about how the revolutionary movement survived an eight-year-long war. Second, this story helps explain why the British lost the war. Accounts from the prisons and prison ships of New York filled American papers. They prompted Philip Frenou to write his famous epic poem, The British Prison Ship. They created a market for the memoirs of former prisoners like Ethan Allen, whose narrative of his experience in captivity is said to have been the most widely read book in America before Uncle Tom's Cabin. Those accounts solidified anti-British feeling in the rebellious colonies. Along the way, they helped Americans conceptualize, conceptualize the difference between us and them, two very similar nations in language and culture, but they were cruel and we were not. Indeed, in wartime propaganda on the American side, cruelty became the thing that most sharply set the adversaries apart from one another, not language or religion or culture or ethnicity, but the treatment of captives. Cruelty was the personality of tyranny. So um, that's an interesting article, and you'll find it over at uh, stonybrook.edu. Now, let's see. Where else? What else do we have? Um, let's see. You have the New York prison ship? Um, um, have the, the uh, let's see, this, okay. Yes, yes, the monument. Um, this is the Brit Prison Ship Martyrs Association, and they put up a monument to the prisoners, um, the 11,000 men, women, and children who died in horrid conditions on the British prison ships. It was put up in Fort Greene Park in 1908. The monument, which is sometimes referred to as the Soldiers and Sailors Monument, stands in the center of what was then called Fort Putnam, named after General Putnam. The monument you see today is actually the third incarnation of this sacred shrine. The story of the horrid prison ships and the ghastly conditions suffered by the men, women, and children imprisoned on them during the Revolutionary War is one of the most disturbing chapters in American history. During, oops, during let's see, yeah, um, during the American Revolutionary War, the British arrested scores of soldiers, sailors, and private citizens on both land and sea. Many were in prison simply because they would not swear allegiance to the Crown of England. Besides American civilians and resistance fighters, the British captured the crews of foreign ships on the high seas, especially Spanish vessels. The apprehended soldiers, sailors, and civilians were deemed by the British to be prisoners of war and were incarcerated. When the British ran out of jail space to house their POWs, they began using decommissioned or damaged ships that were anchored in Wallabout Bay as floating prisons. Uh, life was unbearable on the prison ships the most notorious of them being Old Jersey, which was called hell by the inhabitants. 
Diseases, rapid food and water were scarce or non-existent, and the living conditions were horrendously overcrowded and wretched. If one had money, they could purchase food from the many entrepreneurs who rode up to the boat to sell their wares. Otherwise, the meager rations would consist of sawdust-laden bread or watery soup. A great number of the captives died from disease and malnutrition. Their emaciated bodies were either thrown overboard or buried in shallow graves in the sandy marshes of Wallabout Bay. Even though the British surrendered at Yorktown, Virginia in 1782, the surviving prisoners were not freed until 1783 when the British abandoned New York City. A footnote, after the war, the British commander in charge of the British prison ships was brought up on war crimes charges and was subsequently hanged. Thank you very much. In the years following the war, the bones of the patriots would regularly wash up along the shores of Brooklyn and Long Island. These remains were collected by Brooklynites with the hopes of creating a permanent resting place for the remains of the brave prison ship martyrs. In the early 1880s, the first martyrs monument monument was erected by the Tammany Society of New York. It was located on a triangular plot of land near the Brooklyn Navy Yard waterfront in what is now called Vinegar Hill. By the 1840s, the original monument, monument was in a state of disrepair and neglect. By 1873, a large stone crypt was constructed in the heart of what is now Fort Greene Park, and the bones were reinterred in the crypt. A small monument was erected on the hill above the the crypt, and then uh, they put up the uh, the. Uh, in 1908, they they put up the tower that stands there today. Um, so if you want to go over and see it, it's over at prisonshipmartyrs.com. And it's quite an impressive uh, monument. And, yeah, so there... I'm sorry, that's pretty horrific. Yeah. Because it's not only that they're saying bones, but it wouldn't be only bones. It would be body parts, too, because the critters would be eating on them. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. I mean, can you imagine how many years... Um, they they uh, they did. Oh God, they just came up. Um, the the Battle of Brooklyn in August and the capture of Fort Washington in November 1776 placed in possession of the British nearly 4,000 prisoners, and this number was increased by the arrest of private citizens suspected of complicity with the rebellion to over 5,000 before the end of the war. So they were, you know, they they had to find some place to put them. And you figure they're in the hold of the ship, and it's hot. Imagine what it was like in summer, and then it was freezing cold in the winter, and they didn't have any, you know, nobody, unless they had a little money, they could get clothes, but, I mean, cripes, they were getting down to where they were eating their clothes and and shoes, because they, you know, oh, God. So, yeah, it was a horrendous, um, it was a horrendous uh, situation. And the, uh, let's see, the Whitby was um, said to be the most sickly of all the prison ships. Bad provisions, bad water, and scanted rations were dealt to the prisoners. No medical men attended the sick. Disease reigned unrelieved, and hundreds died from pestilence or were starved aboard this floating prison. 
I saw the sand beach between the ravine and the hill and Mr. Remsen's clock. And this is by uh, General Jeremiah Johnson. Um, became become filled with graves in the course of two months, and before the 1st of May, 1777, the ravine alluded to was itself occupied in the same way. In the month of May, 1777, two large ships were anchored in the wallabout when prisoners were transferred from the Whitby to them, these vessels were also very sickly from the causes before stated. Although many prisoners were sent on board of them and none exchanged, death made room for all. On a Sunday afternoon about the middle of October, one of the prison ships was burnt. The prisoners, except a few who it was said were burnt in the vessel, were removed to the remaining ship. It was reported at the time that the prisoners had fired their prison, which, if true, proves that they preferred death even by fire to the lingering sufferings of pestilence and starvation. In the month of February 1778, the remaining prison ship was burned at night when the prisoners were removed from her to the ship when wintering in the wallabout. Yeah. Woo-hoo. Um, It's just horrible. It was just horrible. Let's see if it says here... Um, well, and can, you can imagine that she was, we talk about this all the time, and, and how these people were, you know, wealthy and had means and, you know, had a really pretty good damn life, and then they get captured like this, or their house gets commandeered, and it's destroyed. Yeah. See, the, 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 the British prisoners and the British soldiers that were fighting here, were not under the same duress as the colonists because their homes were back in Britain or either the West Indies or wherever the Brits had settled. So their homes weren't getting destroyed. Their families weren't getting captured. Their wives weren't being tortured or, you know, having their, their wives have to sleep in the same house with the enemy. That wasn't happening to them. It was, that was happening to the colonists, and that was even happening to the loyalists. Because this was their home. Yeah. You know, America was a loyalist home as well. So they were having this horrific stuff done to them. Whereas the British soldiers, all they had to worry about, they didn't have to worry about their homes and their families. That's what I'm trying to get at. They just had to worry about keeping themselves alive and killing the enemy. Yeah, or being taken prisoner. I mean, they did them prisoner. Um, And they didn't, you know, and again, there wasn't the room and... Um, food was hard to come by in 77 and 78. That was a really hard time um, for the, the Continental Army. And uh, and it got better. And then the British, of course, they were having a hard time. I mean, eventually it got so that both parties were raiding, I mean, both sides were raiding farms and whatnot just to feed their troops. But... Um, George Washington was um, so against looting and and oh, you, if you thought of even raping a woman, you know uh, he just he kept liquor out of the the camps. There was no gambling. He he was you know an upright, righteous you know religious man. And but you cross the line with George Washington, and it was an eye for an eye. Um, so, 
you know, war is never wonderful. War is not romantic. I mean, the songs that come out of it, that was to bolster the soldiers' morale. And you have to realize that war should only, I mean, you know, if you're if you're being beaten down or oppressed, yeah, you fight back. But don't send our kids to war just for political reasons. Thank you. For someone else's problems that they don't really want to solve. Isn't it amazing how how reading all this, you know, we, we get the glorified uh, version in school. Whoa, you know, the old guys in the wigs and everything, and they stood up and they great, gave great debates, blah, 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 blah. Um, you know, and then you start reading this history and, and you find out what our soldiers went through, what their families went through, what these men gave up and sacrificed for the cause of independence and then, you know, um, fight, winning uh, from the British Army. And so many of the signers lost fortunes, uh, died penniless. Um, I mean, it's it just, and, and we just take it for granted. We just take it for granted. And it, like it says on the, the Prison Ship Martyrs Association page, let us never forget their sacrifice. Well, how many people even know about their sacrifice today? This is why we are doing this, because these men and women, every time they opened their mouth, took a step outside their door, did something, uh, I mean, they boycotted tea, they boycotted imports. The women, I mean, they gave up their hus. The women gave up their husbands and sons, and some women even went and got jobs in the camps. You know, the camp followers, which we're going to talk about again, and the nurses and um, the, the sacrifices they made for this country. And we're sitting here going. I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing? Nobody even knows, you know, what the Constitution, well, no, not nobody, but too many people don't know what the Declaration of Independence says and and how it came about and why it was fought for, and nobody knows what the Constitution says um, or the Bill of Rights, and they think the government is their savior, and for many, too many people it's their religion, and if you think that the government is the way to fix things, you have not been paying attention. So God bless these people because they, they gave us the best country in the in the world and it wasn't supposed to even work. Our founders didn't even think it was going to work. Their question was, can people self-govern? They hoped so. They prayed so, you know. But uh, these days, hmm. So, Go over to the, the um, Patriots Pub. Now go, Susan. You tell them where to go. Okay. Well, <laughs> if you want to learn about U.S. history, the founding of this nation, the Constitution, go and visit PatriotsPub.us, PatriotsPub.us. Download from the first episode, 
and you will find out and you will understand what they meant when they wrote this document because it is explained without politics, day by day, from their own mouth. Yes. And that's what we have to do right now. We have, the most important thing we can do is teach ourselves, gain a knowledge base of what this country was actually founded on, what it all means, because this is the only thing we're going to have to fight back. Knowledge is power. So when some politician is trying to tell you that he has to make a law concerning your business or your household or your land, you can look him in the eye and go, excuse me, sir, this is not constitutional. Exactly, and more and more people need to do that. As a matter of fact, as more and more people do that, it it won't become a dirty word because right now the Constitution is a dirty word to them. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, they don't have the Constitution because it limits their power. Thank God. Now we have to get back to that. Yeah, (laughs) I know. And like I always said, and I said this on the show last night, the Uncooperative Radio Show, I would love people, when they go out to these town halls, ask these electric cockroaches, what is their employee handbook? Yes. Yes. And they have to know the entire employee handbook, which means not just their part. And that's Brian brought up a really good point last night, because I said that it's, uh, it's Article One of the Constitution. And Brian said, oh, no, 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 no. Their employee handbook is the entire Constitution. They have to know what everybody's job is. Yes. Yes. It's it's pretty amazing, and it, it doesn't take long to read. In fact, if you bring your Constitution with you and you ask a politician, you know, what's his, his uh, job description or, you know, what's his job book, you whip out your Constitution and you read it to him or her. This, sir. All right. Well, now we're coming to the end of the show. Thank you for being here, ladies and gentlemen. And as always, Yankee Mom takes us up. That takes us out. Okay. I I I heard this today, and it just in, infuriated me. Um, it was the Secretary of the Veterans Affairs, the VA, and his name is. Um, Let's see, what is his name? Uh, Robert McDonald, I believe. Uh, he said that uh, that Disney doesn't, how did he put it? Disney doesn't um, pay attention to the wait times. Why should the VA? And the TSA also said this, you know, this whole thing, because there were the two of them there. Um yeah, Robert McDonald. Um uh, he said that uh he believes um veteran veterans wait times for appointments aren't a valid measure for their experience at the VA and releasing more wait time data would create negative headlines that would distract people from what really matters. And he he basically brought up Disney 
not, you know, taking note of their wait times for lines for rides. And he's equating that with our veterans who are dying while waiting for care. So call your representative, call your senator, tell them this is just unacceptable. Because the VA schedules are still manipulating wait times and uh, the uh, the Government Accountability Office uh, recommends that the VA more accurately measure them, but Robert McDonald doesn't want to. When you go to Disney, do they measure the number of hours you wait in line? What's important? What's important is what's your satisfaction with the experience? Well, that's if you don't die before you get an appointment or commit suicide. Oh, this is just... <clears throat> So, please, uh, stand up for the vets and uh, let your Congress critters know that we will not let this go by at all. Make your voice heard. And then while you have them on the line, read them their job description. Well, thank you for coming. That's it for tonight. God bless. God bless America. Have a good week. We'll see you next week. With Lucky Land slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.